Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. For decades, China has been the engine of global growth, doubling its GDP every eight years. But now it faces weak demand, slowing productivity, and an aging population. Many are asking, is the China growth story over? I want to know if China can beat the middle income trap and what it means for investors. And in today's dumb question of the week, is China's currency the yuan or the renminbi? Okay, let's get into it. So, Romin, just how important has China been to the global economy over the last 40, 50 years? Initially, not very, but now extremely. I think that's the (laughs) overall description of it. But I think at the moment, investors are pretty scared that such a systemically important country could suddenly essentially implode the equity market. So I think that's why this episode is really relevant to investors, because this is a really important country. Russia wasn't so important, and China really is very, very important. The thing with China, though it's grown so strongly and has had GDP growth of around 10% a year from 1979 to 2018, and that's lifted 800 million people out of poverty, so a huge story in the world of economics, the returns for investors, I guess what we care about as selfish people, have been poor. (laughs) And this was something that many people had noticed that, okay, GDP growth is good, but where are the equity returns? And really, it's a matter of turning GDP growth into profit growth for the companies you can invest in. And there are a number of problems there. There wasn't a really big investable market if you were outside China. Now that's not so much true. They have opened up their capital markets. But the question is, how can you turn that GDP growth into profit growth, which then translates into stock market growth? Because it was really easy to buy into the story as an investor, I think. You looked at China and that was where the growth was. It was the future. And that has played out, but we've not seen the return. So you could have easily bought into something like K-Web and been burned. Yeah, indeed. I believe some people did do that (laughs) and they did get burned. (laughs) So what were you thinking at the time you bought K-Web? And do you still believe the story now? I still believe the growth story. And I still believe that China is very rapidly adopting these technologies faster than the West in many ways. So, yeah, I think that adoption of the Internet, use of the Internet and urbanization of China, all of that is completely intact. And it's still the case that by urbanization, people moving from the countryside into the cities, they become more productive the rate of urbanisation is still three greater Londons per year. That's the rate at which China's urbanising. One greater London is too much for me. I can't (laughs) wait to get out. (laughs) (laughs) So that story is still intact. And I think there's going to be huge advances in China in terms of the stock market, in terms of technology. But investing in that is pretty tricky. Because that was the focus of that fund you bought a while ago. K-Web is internet companies in China, effectively. Yeah, what would have been better, as it turns out, is the green companies. There's also a Crane Shares China Clean Technology ETF. So that would have been a better choice, as it turns out, because those policies for that fund, for the companies which are inside it, are much more aligned with the direction of travel from the central government. Yeah, you didn't want to pile into internet stocks before Xi decided to smash up Alibaba and all the other ones. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although I still think there's upside for those companies. It's just a matter of time. So let's get back to the question then of, is the growth story over for the Chinese economy? So the latest figures 
according to the official data at least, are that China's GDP increased 6.3% in Q2, which was below economists' forecasts of 7.3%, but, you know, still respectable. The target for the year is 5%, but it is slowing down. So on a quarter-by-quarter basis, it was only 0.8% growth, which is down from 2.2% the quarter before. But all of this is bound up in the COVID recovery and the story that the Chinese consumer has not gone on this sort of revenge spending boom that everyone was hoping for. But just to step back a moment and just talk about GDP growth generally, for a developed market country such as the UK, the US, Japan, growth of around 3% is pretty good. That's real growth. We definitely take that in the UK right now. (laughs) But we're still seeing the aftershocks of the pandemic where we had a massive fall, a massive rise, and it's like shocking a system. You've got to wait for the system to calm down to actually see the long-term trends. At the moment, we're still seeing that aftershock. But clearly, in the case of China, if it does become a developed market, which is obviously trying to do, then it's going to gradually decrease its growth rate from around 6% per year, which it's presently kind of cruising at or aiming for. And it's going to gradually fall down to that 3% annual growth rate, which is going to be a problem. Certainly the IMF has become gloomier and gloomier on the longer term prospects for China's growth. So they've been marking down their forecasts for the next five years and do see it decelerating to around 3.4% by 2028, as you say. Now, that used to be the tail risk that all strategists talked about was a 5% handle on GDP growth for China. That was called the China hard landing. And so below 6% was seen as a semi-crisis and 5% was seen as a shock. Now that's becoming much more acceptable, I think. And this is kind of talked about as the middle income trap, which a lot of countries get stuck in. So they go through that early stage of growth, they urbanize, they build their infrastructure, they build their housing and all of that stuff, which isn't at the frontier of technology. And you're just kind of mirroring what other countries have done. So maybe it's not that difficult. I would argue it is that difficult on a scale of what China's done. But anyway, it's definitely easier than innovating technology. And so For some context, the middle income trap, China's growth has taken it to around 30% of US per capita GDP. That's on purchasing power terms. So it's still very much not a developed market in terms of the average living standards of a Chinese person. So what are the hallmarks of a developed country? There isn't a formal definition, but you can say certain things about the way the economy looks and the way it kind of feels. Firstly, it's highly urbanised, so there's not much agriculture, there's lots of people living in cities. And if you look at China since 1960, in 1960, less than a fifth of the population lived in cities. It was a largely agrarian society. Since then, it's gradually increased that urbanisation rate such that currently it's about 63% urbanised. If we compare that with the UK, 84% of the population live in cities So what's the dream to get to like Luxembourg or Monaco and be like 100% urbanised? (laughs) Everyone in one big city. You've got to feed people, but there's got to be some people who live in the countryside by choice. I would. I think the reason cities are seen as so important is because of the clustering effect and agglomeration, they call it, don't they? Where if you look at the stats, people are more productive when they live alongside other people who are more productive and everything's tightly focused together. And it's really about salary. If you live in a city, you've got to have a certain salary to pay your rent and to pay for food, which is usually quite expensive. Whereas if you're someone who lives in a rural setting and you're a a labourer on a farm in China, 
you're not going to be as productive as someone who's working in the financial industry or a tech company in Shanghai. So it's really the nature of the urbanization as well which matters. If you're cutting hair in Shanghai, you're not going to increase GDP. Whereas if you're working in a tech company, clearly you're going to contribute more to GDP. If you get the robots to cut hair, then they will increase GDP and productivity. It's true, actually. I suppose if you didn't have those low paid jobs, if they were done by robots, as long as the people who are working are producing more stuff, then yeah, it would be good for GDP. So you mentioned that urbanisation and a reducing reliance on agriculture as part of the economy is a sign of a developed market. What else are we looking at? Well, there are these development indices which are created by organisations like the United Nations. And those would include not just financial things, so income, but also things like knowledge. What proportion of people are literate? What proportion of people have been to university and had secondary education? What's life expectancy? What's the nature of health in the country? Are they a healthy population? So it's really about being healthy, wealthy and knowledgeable. Those are the kind of uh, key indicators. And not too many farmers. (laughs) Well, if they're wealthy, healthy farmers, then yeah, fine. I mean, the thing that a lot of economists talk about with China is that there needs to be a rebalancing of their economy. If you look at what makes up their GDP now and for the entirety of their growth, really, so much of it has come from investment. You know, they've built their housing and their offices and their cities and their trains and all of this stuff. But a relatively small share has come from consumption, like people going out and buying goods and services. And that needs to change now, like the investment side of things has kind of taken them as far as they can. The way I see this is that investment today is kind of like delayed consumption. Because if you're building a huge train infrastructure, the ability to manufacture electric cars and educating the population, this is all setting the system up for greater consumption in future. So I'd say that this is kind of like a slow burn. And I'd argue, actually, that China's doing this much better than the West. You just compare that with the UK, where it's so difficult just to build a single high-speed train line. You know, we've got, <laughs> we've got HS2, which runs through Buckinghamshire. I live in Buckinghamshire, and there's just been so much pushback. I know. Just build the thing. You compare that with China, where... They just force through one of these building programs. So going from planning for one of these train lines to actually building it takes less than a year usually. And there's an incredible video from the South China Morning Post, which shows a train station being built. I think it's in 48 hours from scratch. And you just think, why can't we do that? Do you want a mind-blowing stat about Chinese high-speed rail? Yeah, go on. So they started building roughly 15 years ago. And now the Chinese high-speed rail network is around twice as long as all the other high-speed rail networks in the world combined. And they've done that in 15 years. And I bet the trains are great. They're clean, they're fast. I have been to China, but never travelled on one of those trains. I mean, I just like that there's 42,000 kilometres of this high-speed rail network. That's incredible. And yet in the West, we have real problems with building an infrastructure system like that because of people having rights, essentially. You know, there's always this trade-off between people having property rights, being able to say no to the government when they don't want something built in their backyard. There are no NIMBYs in China, I don't think. I mean, that's part of it for sure, but I actually don't think that's the main reason China's been so successful. When I looked into it, the costs of building high-speed rail in China are 40% cheaper than in Europe on a per-kilometre basis. 
And largely that's because China has domestically all the suppliers it needs. And they know the demand's going to be there from the government because this was a major strategy. So there's no scaling up and scaling down and tendering process. It's just like build, build, build. And we have it all right there. Yeah, the central planning has certainly been very successful for things like the rollout of 5G, for the train network, for the development of resources for the auto industry. And solar power as well. Solar power, massive in China and so successful. China is adding more renewable energy than the US, EU and India combined. And they're selling those panels, of course, globally. So I think a lot of what they do has been incredible in terms of the government planning what to do, but also the relationship between government and these companies, which actually implement a lot of the strategies. That's been very successful. And that's something I think we should learn from in the West. But it's the scale of this investment. And it really is staggering. So in China, around 44% of GDP goes into investment. And if you compare that to sort of the global average, it would be more like 25%. And in mature developed market economies, it's usually 20% or lower. Yeah, I was just looking that up. I looked at the US, which is 21%, and the UK is 18%. But that's where China will probably have to come down to, maybe more like 30%. And it's consumption what people are actually spending is going to have to rise to fill that gap. Otherwise, you're just having shrinking GDP. And I think that's going to be painful. They've been very quick to develop the infrastructure, but the transition to people actually buying stuff, using the infrastructure, that's going to be a difficult thing for the government to force on people. They are going to try. (laughs) So (laughs) I was just reading this morning, actually, about the latest Politburo meeting out of China, where they sort of give the diktat from on high from the Communist Party. And I'll quote one of the state news agencies who reported the meeting as emphasising, it is necessary to actively expand domestic demand, give full play to the basic role of consumption in driving economic growth by increasing residents' income. We want to boost the consumption of automobiles, electric products and home furnishing and promote the consumption of services such as sports, leisure and cultural tourism which sounds like all the things they should be doing. I don't know exactly what mechanisms they're going to use to do that. I presume some kind of state subsidies and trying to get more money into people's pockets to spend. It just reminds me of this episode of Top Gear or possibly Grand Tour, I can't remember which, where they were challenged to review SUVs, typical lifestyle cars that people actually drive. And all they did is they just went to these DIY shopping centres. They just bought lots of crap. And then they just dumped it straight into the landfill (laughs) as a kind of one finger up to the producers, I think. But it just makes me laugh that the government is trying to force consumption on its population. Whereas in America, people are very willing to go out and buy lots of tat and fill up the landfill. I mean, that's what people were hoping for the post-COVID rebound in China was that they would do what the American consumer has done and, you know, see a surge in spending. It just hasn't materialised yet, at least. I mean, I think the point here about the transition of an economy from investment to more of a consumption focus is that it doesn't necessarily have to be bad for the populace. It might actually be good for them, even if GDP growth is slower. Yeah, there was a bit of kind of bridge to nowhere spending, which a lot of people criticised, and overcapacity infrastructure that nobody really needs. And there has been a bit of pushback, I think, even for things like the train network, where some people are saying that it's never going to pay back the investment. I think that's true. The thing China's good at is marshalling loads of resources and building quickly. What it's less good at is doing that in an efficient way 
And some of the criticism has actually come from within China. So, for example, Zhao Jian of Beijing Zhaotong University has said that the rail system doesn't make enough money to cover the cost of its construction, operation and financing. So it's not just people outside China who are criticising the infrastructure programmes. Yeah, they probably got a bit too overexcited as they were doing it. And you see the same thing in the housing sector, I think, which is probably the biggest problem overhanging the country right now. If you look at the proportion of GDP which comes from the housing sector, that's always a kind of red flag when it goes really high. And in China, either directly or indirectly, it's estimated to be around 20% of GDP. Yeah, some people have it as north of 25%. But of course, that's including indirect things. So for example, cement companies, steel companies, all of these which feed into the infrastructure. If we included that in Britain and added up all the TV programmes about property development, it would probably be over 100% of our economy, I think. (laughs) Certainly 100% of our hopes. I mean, the thing about overcapacity you mentioned is super interesting because I read that China has already reached developed country levels of living space per person. And in fact, that was true even five years ago. So it had kind of built all the space it needed, really, for people to live, especially when you consider their ageing population, which we'll come on to later. But then they kept building and kept building and arguably inflated an enormous bubble. The trouble is, once it starts, it's really hard to stop this juggernaut because for regional governments, for example, a big money owner is selling land to developers. That's a kind of self-perpetuating machine. Yeah, I think it's actually their main source of income. They don't really levy property taxes as such. They just make money from selling land and eventually you run out of land to sell, I imagine. But the other thing to note is that the vacancy rates in the Chinese housing market are super high. Over 20% of the housing stock is vacant, which is far above rich countries. But weirdly, property prices in China, especially in the tier one cities, are still insane. And I know we think about, okay, the UK's got crazy house prices, Canada, New Zealand. But think about this. In Shanghai, the price to income ratio for property is 50. Can you put that in any kind of context for us, Romin? So it depends on the source of the data you look at. But for the UK as a whole, it's around six times earnings. For England, it's around eight times. Which is still pretty expensive by historic standards. But then you look at the Chinese cities and it really is on another level. So they're not all at Shanghai 50 times levels, but Beijing is 35. And these prices aren't sustainable. But again, I think the Chinese government probably won't let the bubble pop very rapidly. Because if it did, there'd be huge amounts of social unrest. And really, this brings me on to a key point, I think, about China's growth. It kind of reminds me of Rome and the way it financed itself and how it was always dependent on increasing the scope of the empire. And once that growth stopped, Rome kind of imploded. And I'm slightly concerned (laughs) that the Chinese growth model isn't sustainable and that once people start to see themselves not becoming much wealthier over time, then there's going to be social unrest. I mean, in the UK, you can see it. I always whinge about the fact that my kids are probably going to be worse off than me. And this is the first time in a generation in the UK where we've seen that. And there is a lot of anger about it. But I think in China, it might spill over and become much worse than it would be in the UK, for example. I think there's definitely the potential for that to happen. The other thing that grabs my attention when I look down the stats is that unemployment is high, especially among young people. So the 16 to 24 age group in China, unemployment is over 20%. That's incredibly bad, isn't it? 
So in the UK, youth unemployment was 11.4% compared to 4% for the whole population. So clearly a problem, but not as extreme as China. Plus, I think in China, there's also the problem of migrant labour, where people aren't really accepted as living in a city. They just live in urban areas temporarily while they work, usually in a factory. And the number of these rural migrant workers is absolutely huge. Roughly 300 million people. I believe they actually have a permitting system, don't they, about who's allowed to live in particular regions. So it is like you're a second class citizen. If you're not fully accepted into a city, you're just there as a kind of guest in order to work really long hours. I know there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the so-called 996 culture. Have you heard about this? Yes. Where the typical day is you start at 9am, you finish at 9pm and you work six days a week. Yeah, welcome to pension craft. (laughs) 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 And the other thing you have in common with China, Romin, is the rapid (laughs) ageing. Oh God, I, I certainly feel it. I mean, that's the looming elephant in the room here, isn't it? is that the number of births in China has fallen by half since just 2016. And that's to do with the cost of living, I suspect. If land is so expensive and your house is full of babies, then <laughs> and you have to work really long hours, who's going to look after the kids? That's a difficult problem to solve. Yeah. I mean, they've been running the one-child policy since the 1980s. It's been abandoned now. But according to the UN, China's fertility rate is around 1.16. So I guess they belatedly achieved the one-child policy. But that's 40% lower than the US and 22% lower than in Europe. And to just give you a scale of that, so in the 1960s, in China, for every 1,000 people, there were around 40 births. By the 1980s, it had come down to around 20 births. And now it's around seven. So it's a dramatic slowing of the birth rate. I know that there are also worries about where the births are happening. I think in rural areas, the fertility rate's much higher. And that's not what the Chinese government wants. They want those high GDP generating families within tier one cities to be having more babies. So the interesting thing is the lag effect here, isn't it? We talk about it in the context of things like central banks, where monetary policy has a lag of, I don't know, maybe two years. With demographic trends, the lag is enormous. You're talking decades before you really feel the pain of a low birth rate. But China's population did actually shrink last year for the first time since the Great Famines in the 1960s. And what's kind of worrying is its young population has been falling for a long time now, around 20 years. And if you look forward over the course of decades, what does it mean? So there are around 1.4 billion Chinese people today. And in fact, it will only fall to around 1.3 billion by 2050 because of life expectancy getting higher and higher over time. But what that doesn't capture is the change in the makeup of the population. So you can have many, many more old people and a lot smaller working age population. So China's prime working age population, that's people aged 15 to 49, that's set to fall by around 40% from its 2010 peak over just the next 30 years. But stepping back again to the overall dependency ratio, that's a ratio of people older than 64 relative to the working age population, which is 15 to 64. China's still very low compared to other countries. Japan's at over 50%. China's only at 20, but increasing very rapidly. That's the point. It's increasing super fast. So the population aged over 65 was 100 million in 2005. 
that will have doubled to 200 million by 2025 and then double again to 400 million people aged over 65 by 2050. And this is one of the reasons why people say there's not high consumption in China, which is that people save for their old age and they don't rely on the state to do that. So I think one of the things which will have to happen is we'll have to see the introduction of pensions. So maybe pension craft China is going to be a big thing in the future. But I think certainly things like insurance companies will benefit from that trend. Also asset management companies. Yeah, people need to feel secure enough to spend their money today, don't they? If you're transitioning to a consumption economy. But the numbers are remarkable. You look at it and you think, how are they going to make this work? But look, social engineering is what they specialise in. So perhaps that's something they can pull off. But I certainly think it's going to be a problem for them. And of course, if you look at the politics of China, that's also a worrying trend, which is they're becoming more belligerent. They're certainly flexing their muscles in the South China Sea. And of course, now talking about Taiwan and incorporating it into China, essentially invading. I mean, I've seen some people saying that if you buy this thesis that we're at peak China right now in terms of its relative economic strength and geopolitical power, maybe now's the time to make a move. Or if it starts to decline in relative terms, then sometimes you need a great narrative to sell to the population and therefore a move on Taiwan becomes more likely. Also worrying is some people in the United States saying that they should try and force a war now before China becomes too powerful. That's certainly one of the points of view in the US. So they may actually instigate a war in order to win that war. The one thing I don't hear many people talking about is what do the Taiwanese want? <laughs> Which is probably <laughs> what we should be focused on. Now, I guess all this point about demographics and aging population is kind of an inevitability now for China because of these lag effects, like everyone who's going to be working in the 2030s has already been born. We know who's going to be there. But what China does have going for it is it's really well located. So although China's population is going to be shrinking, it's on the doorstep of many countries whose population is growing rapidly. And it's going to service those countries. Yeah. The economic links are very strong and trade is geographically based, as we've learned in the UK, to our cost. This is the kind of subtle thing you can say so you don't get bad feedback <laughs> if I ever mention Brexit. I just slipped that in subtly, didn't I? Most people won't even notice. <laughs> well, all that sounded quite negative on China, didn't it? But I think we should balance this out. What have they got that's going really well at the moment? Well, it's sitting on our driveway, which is a Chinese manufactured car from the SAIC. I thought you were pretending it was an MG. Well, I am pretending it's an MG to our friends. Laura says we can't say it's Chinese. We have to say it's an MG. But it's great. You know, it has all the basic functions. OK, they forgot to fill it with air conditioning gas when they delivered it. So they had to go to the, uh, to the garage and get it refilled or filled. But otherwise, yeah, it's been great. It doesn't have over-the-air updates like a Tesla. But it has all the kind of basic functionality. It's got Android Auto, all the kind of reversing cameras, a 250-mile range. So, you know, I'm kind of happy with it. Four wheels, steering wheel. Indeed. Sunroof. But this is the point, right? As a <laughs> physicist, I love electric motors because they're so simple. You know, even a kid can build one. And they're so much simpler than combustion engines. And that means that designing cars has suddenly become like building a Lego model. So is that why China has caught up so rapidly? Because it was really nowhere in terms of car exports just a few years ago. But now it's the world's biggest car exporter and its exports have quadrupled since just 2020. But like you were saying earlier, 
about the central planning being in sync with the companies which actually implement the policies. The battery manufacturing can all happen within China. They've been busily making sure that they've got access to all of the raw materials like lithium, but also cobalt. And the ability to refine those is mostly focused in China. But being able to to manufacture those at scale and feed that into the auto industry is something which China's done really well. Compare that with the UK, where we had Volt, which failed. It's only because an Indian company, Jaguar Land Rover, has said that it's going to build a 4 billion UK gigafactory that we've got any kind of manufacturing ability here in the UK. Or any kind of hope to maintain the car industry. Yeah. So I think that's the big difference between them and us. I think the advantage China maybe had, as well as all that resource-based leg up, is that they didn't have the legacy of all this combustion engine manufacturing and their auto manufacturers weren't there thinking, oh, do we scale this down? How rapidly do we invest in this battery technology? They were just like, we'll go flat out for batteries. And it's very much in line with their other manufacturing skills, which is assembling things. And because they are modular, these electric cars, it really fits in nicely with the way they operate in China. So building an electric car is kind of like assembling an iPhone. You take the various manufacturing parts and assemble it into a whole, and they can do that so well. And it's interesting when you look at the stats. So as I mentioned, they're the biggest car exporter now, bigger than Germany and Japan. That's on a gross basis. But on a net basis, they're not. And that's because the consumption of domestic cars in China has fallen so much recently. They're actually not making more cars, really, than they were a couple of years ago. It's just it's all been focused on exports. And a big reason their exports have grown is because Russia has been buying a lot of cars from China because it can't source them from anywhere else right now. But it's not just about Russia. So the European Union and the UK together are still responsible for around one third of the export volume of Chinese cars. And it's actually true that you could even see China exporting more cars to Europe than the other way around within the next two or three years, which would be quite the story and probably not something that will please Germany. And let's not forget that Warren Buffett bought into BYD, which is a car manufacturer now, but also a producer of batteries. So that was incredible foresight on his part. And that's a real domestic manufacturer in China. So a lot of these exports are from companies like Tesla, who manufacture their cars in China rather than being Chinese companies. It is right now, but I just went to the electric car show, fully charged, and BYD was actually showing some of its cars there. I suspect that they will soon start to export to Europe, including the UK. I mean, why wouldn't they? Because of protectionism, (laughs) which will dress up as French shoring. (laughs) Don't you think there'll be a big pushback from the German car manufacturers? Oh yeah, no question. But whatever you say, China is doing remarkably well now in cars. And the other thing it's doing really well seems to be education. Between the year 2000 and 2022, enrollment in tertiary education, so that's universities basically, increased from 12% to 60%. That's just a remarkable change in such a short period of time. And just think about it. How many engineers are they producing every year, which then go on to work in the tech industry, in the finance industry, because they're numerate? That's just an incredible achievement, I think. Education's probably the one which most governments in the West hate to address because it takes too long to happen. But if you're working on a very short-term cycle politically, you're not going to give a damn about education, really. And I think that's been a huge problem. 
Because if you really want value add, you have to have a better educated population. I mean, it does seem to be true that China can think on a longer term scale than a Western government can, just because it doesn't have this electoral cycle. And maybe the most poignant thing about what China's doing well right now is life expectancy. So now it is true that average life expectancy is higher in China than it is in the United States. Looking at the graph, though, it's interesting. There was a big dip with COVID, as obviously the US had a pretty high mortality rate. China didn't, or at least not in the official data. Yeah, but it was catching up rapidly anyway. So from the late 70s, China's life expectancy was around 64 years, and now it's over 78 years. And the US has been plateaued for the last decade at around 78 years. And as you say, it's just dipped with COVID, so China's now above it. So it certainly ticks two of the three boxes in terms of development index. It's got good education now. It's got health and longevity. The only thing which is missing is the average income. So I think it is just a matter of time until it becomes developed. The big question is, have they peaked, right? Is the demographic trend and the challenges of moving from an investment-led economy to a consumption economy, is that just going to drag them down? So essentially, is China going to get stuck in the middle income trap? I think the education part of this puzzle is the one where China's really done well. And if you want to avoid a middle income trap, that's how you do it. You ensure that the people who are working are working in the kind of value add industries. But over the last 50, 100 years, not many countries have avoided the middle income trap. South Korea, I guess, Singapore. South Korea is a good example, actually, where education was effectively the reason why they never got into that problem. So you can see that China's policies are very much geared towards those value-add industries. So we're talking about AI, but also chip manufacturing. They're going to have to go it alone there because they're effectively being starved out of the chip ecosystem by the United States. And I think they'll probably rise to that challenge. They've got enough engineers to do it, certainly. I think it'll be a while before they really get to the frontier of chip design. It's a very hard skill, especially things like lithography at the cutting edge which ASML is really the only one doing it at the forefront. Yeah, there was a great episode of Odd Lots, which was all about ASML and how they actually have to fiddle with the design of these masks, as they call them, for ultraviolet lithography, because there are sort of distortions in the masks and it's all, all kind of gaff tape and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not kind of like a really complex science. It's actually just a matter of fudging it. And that's the thing, all these industries, you think, oh, if you throw them enough money at it, surely we can catch up. A lot of it is hard to do because it's kind of the knowledge of the people who've been doing it and designing it for 30 odd years. And there's a reason why chip manufacturing is really hard to do. And there's a reason why very few countries are at the forefront of technological development. But I think these people misunderstand how engineering works, because if you copy someone else, fine, you got the original idea from them. But once you've got people in-house building those systems... If they understand those systems, they'll know how to improve them. So it's really, I think, unfair to say, you know, you just copied other people's technology and you're not going to be able to develop it yourself. I think that's nonsense. I think it's just a matter of time until they do that. I mean, clearly it's critical to China to be able to manufacture high-end chips, both from a military perspective and from a manufacturing perspective. Whether they'll get there, I don't know. There's a great book called Chip War by Chris Miller, who is sceptical that China has the ability to catch up soon at least. But maybe let's go on to what does all this mean for investors? So we've kind of done the challenges China faces and the successes they've had. But as we said, as yet, foreign investors have not really seen great growth from China. 
So what's it going to take for that to change? I think they're going to have to convince people in the West that they're no longer at risk of becoming the next Russia. Because I speak to people all the time and everybody is stampeding out of China. You just look at these ex-China EM funds and their popularity and their inflows. And you can see that effectively they've lost that battle of hearts and minds. People are just not willing to provide capital to China anymore as they were just five years ago. I mean, what does China look like now in terms of valuation of their stock market? Is it undervalued on a fundamentals basis because people have been pulling back? Well, if we look at the forward price to earnings multiple for Asia as a whole, it's 13.2 times. China is just 10.1. So it's cheaper than Asia as a whole and much cheaper than, say, India, which is 21 times forward earnings and cheaper than the US, which is 20 times. And I think maybe importantly, China is cheaper than its own history. So other than a brief period in 2015, it looks like it's the cheapest it's been in almost 20 years. Of course, that's for a reason, which is this geopolitical elephant in the room. Yeah, it was an interesting episode to prepare for. So I kind of chose the topic because I've been reading a lot about China recently and trying to make up my mind as an investor about whether I should have money in China. And do you know what my conclusion was, Roman? I don't know. <laughs> so I think I'll just have to keep it in line with the global indices. Well, I don't have any China at all. I've got DevelopedX UK. That's my core holding. But that wasn't because I don't like China. It was because it was just a cheap fund and it was available on Vanguard. But if I had to choose, I think I probably would go for DM at the moment because of this risk, the geopolitical risk, because I can't afford over my lifetime to take that risk. I think for you, Michael, it's probably a safer bet. Yeah, I'm not really willing to make the bet either way, though, if you know what I mean. I wouldn't want to completely exclude China because it does have so much potential still. But then also the risk, especially around demographics over the long term, seems stark. And also, like you say, the geopolitical risk of just a hard stop is bad. But then I kind of think most of what we've talked about is the impact on GDP growth. And the correlation between GDP growth and stock market returns is not an obvious one. In fact, I think I've seen research which says that, at least in developed markets, it's almost slightly a negative relationship. That's right. <laughs> Weaker GDP growth, weirdly, seems to lead to higher stock market returns. So maybe the bad returns we've seen from China are about to turn around because its GDP growth is going to be slower. <laughs> is that a potential thing? I think short term, there's the negative correlation. But long term, look, if there's growth in income for a country, that leads to higher GDP and greater profits for the companies within that country. So long term, yeah, I think equity market growth and GDP will have a strong relationship and it'll be positively correlated. If you're worried about your emerging market allocation and how much exposure you've got to China, why not join our conversation on PensionCraft on our chat channels, but also access our exclusive content and members-only videos. To learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Is China's currency the yuan or the renminbi? Have I even pronounced this right to begin with? I don't know. I actually gave a presentation a while ago and there were some Chinese people in the audience and I was trying to say the word yuan. <laughs> I kept saying it. They kept correcting me. So I never said it correctly. But were you saying the right word? Should you have been saying renminbi? What's the difference here? Well, in fact, I use the two words interchangeably. The kind of comparison I heard, which was the best one that helped me understand, was that the renminbi is to sterling as yuan is to the pound. 
Okay, let me unpick that. So the renminbi is the sterling. So that means the renminbi is the official name of the currency and the yuan is to the pound. So the yuan is the kind of unit of that currency that we actually spend. Yeah. So the ISO symbol for the Chinese currency is CNY, which is the Chinese yuan. So that's the one that really we should be talking about when we're talking about the Chinese currency. But I like that comparison to the pound, though, because we would say, here's three pounds for you. We wouldn't say, here's three sterling. So you couldn't say, here's three renminbi, but you could say, here's three yuan. Yeah, that would sound odd. You know, certainly currency traders would talk about CNY, they talk about the yuan. I mean, the Chinese currency, whatever you call it, has been a controversial thing for a long time. Yeah, Americans always claim that China's deliberately weakening the currency to make its exports more competitive. The evidence for that is pretty weak, I think. They did briefly declare them a currency manipulator, didn't they, under the Trump administration? And then it was kind of rode back, I think, the next year. Yeah, if you actually look at the currency and how it varies over time, it is a managed currency, but it's managed relative to a basket of countries to which it exports, most of which are now in Asia. So it's relative to a basket of Asian currencies. So I don't really buy the argument that it's a currency manipulator. It's weird how many people seem to think it's going to replace the dollar. (laughs) It's way off that. Like if you think about all the problems people have with the dollar, that the US uses it as a geopolitical weapon and can confiscate your money. Well, it'll be worse if you use the Chinese currency, surely. Yeah, I don't really think that's an argument for using the yuan. But the other complication with China's currency is that there's an offshore version and an onshore version. The offshore version is what people in the West would usually have access to. And the symbol for that is informally CNH rather than CNY. What difference does this make? Well, it's still not a fully convertible currency, which is the reason why I don't think the renminbi would be acceptable as a reserve currency, for example, widely used as a reserve currency. Yeah, China has capital controls, basically, doesn't it? It doesn't let its citizens fully move money out of the country. There's limits on it. Whereas with the dollar, you can trade as much as you want, anywhere you want, pretty much, unless you invade Ukraine, say. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.